0: launch and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. So the first question is, growing up in Baltimore, what's the first brand you remember making an impact on you?
1: Well, you can't be growing up in Baltimore without knowing about Old day or burger cookies. So if you're a Baltimore native listening to this, you'll know what I'm talking about there. Um, I would say on the, uh, on the consumable side, like beyond food, um, you know, it was, it was an era of tree-torn tennis shoes and, and there weren't a lot of options. I mean, we all had uniforms for school, so we didn't have a lot of options, but those would be the brands that we could remember. Now, now of course, they're all coming back. They're, they're having a renaissance.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Elizabeth Price, the chief marketing officer for Anthropology, the nearly 30 year old lifestyle brand that started with its first store in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and now has more than 200 stores globally, a growing e commerce business. Anthropology did about $1.3 billion in revenue last year. Anthropology is part of Urban, the multi brand lifestyle retailer founded by Richard Hain in 1970 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Other brands in the urban portfolio include Urban Outfitters, Free People, Terrain, and Newly. My guest Elizabeth loves lifestyle, fashion, and beauty. She has worked at Saks Fifth Avenue, J. Crew, the Estee Lauder Companies, BH Cosmetics, and now Anthropology for the past 16 months. This is my conversation with Elizabeth Price. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the CMO podcast. And I have to get you to tell, this, tell us this up front. What is the most exotic thing that you have purchased from anthropology that is in your home or office?
1: Oh, exotic thing. Um, Well, I have to be honest, I've been purchasing quite a lot of clothes. But I think the clothes that I've been purchasing um, are usually the ones that are very unlike anything else I have. Um, My newest purchase that I can't wait to wear is a um, conversational pink top with red lobsters on them. So what could be more exotic than that?
0: Perfect. The most exotic thing we almost bought in your store was we returned from Europe. We lived in Prague. My wife walks into your store. She sees a Czech drinking fountain. Oh. So, you know, we almost bought it. We didn't. But we'll get into anthropology and in our family later. There's a lot of good stories in your. But but, uh, I,
1: but I think what's interesting, Jim, is that you've just articulated like the special part of anthropology. Which is that you don't know what you're going to find when you walk into that store, but it's something that's like a piece of magic, and it it created a memory, and you were able to actually recount it how many you know months, years, whatever later, and you still remember that you remember the store, remember what it is you saw, you remember how special it felt, and it and it spoke to you.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as long as we're there, my wife used to take our daughter there every year for her birthday, to just be in the store and look at stuff together and buy her something. We have many rugs of yours in our home today. We love old homes. We have found all sorts of cabinet knobs and doorknobs in your store. So it's an incredible discovery place.
1: It's a discovery zone. It's, it's it, a happy it's, zone too.
0: So are these stories common, what we're talking oh, about now? I,
1: I, 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 you know, what's amazing to me is that there is an absolute love of this brand that I don't think you could ever make up. I mean, as a marketer, there's nothing more amazing than, than walking into a brand that people already love. Um, you just basically get to, to spread that love to more people. It becomes a major goal. Um, I do believe, though, that um, what you're describing is what we see all the time of people actually making a trip to anthropology a, a, an entertainment, part of their entertainment, and part of a special moment, part of a magic moment in their life. Um, whether it be, you know, their long-term life, like getting married and going to the Polden store, or it's a, um, spending a birthday at the store, or, uh, what we find a lot is people actually coming in on Mother's Day with their mothers to the store, hmm. which is really special. And it's a, it's a multi-generational experience for certain.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to get into why that's going on in a few minutes, but tell us what was it, what was it like growing up in Baltimore? You had two professional parents. I believe. Yep. So, what was it like growing up, and what kind of did you learn about work life integration with two busy parents in your household?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Well, um, one great example is you need to stay extremely organized, you can't overthink things. I'm a big believer that things take as long as you give it. If you give it two days, it takes two days. If you give it 20 minutes, it takes 20 minutes. And my mother actually um, was very professional, um, but she actually had multiple careers um, and she didn't go back to law school um, until she was 40 when she had all of us as little kids. So I would say that what I learned from that experience was um, even as as a child, I was in sixth grade at the time, you have to sort of step up and chip in, you know, you have to you have to do your do your part. Um, you, I'm the oldest of three and we all had to chip in and and take care of ourselves, um, to the extent that we could. I mean, certainly my parents took care of us, but, you know, we also had to make sure that we, we, um, were contributing and we were doing our chores and, and helping out and, and being self-sufficient.
0: Yeah. So did any of your siblings go into marketing?
1: No, they both went into teaching. They both went into teaching. So my brother is a, a professor of law. And my sister is um, in the arts world.
0: Now, since growing up and going to Bryn Mawr in Baltimore, you've lived, if I have it correct, outside Boston, outside Paris, in New York, in L.A., and now Philadelphia. I I realize we're all working from home these days and so on, but Philadelphia is where your headquarters. Which of those cities, or maybe better said, which, which of your experiences in those cities has had the largest impact on you?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a great question. It's a hard question to answer. Um, I would say that maybe outside Boston was one of the most important because that was my first time really being on your own. I mean, you're now, you know, you're in college, you're on your own, you're, you're independent um, in the sense that you're no longer sort of um, tethered to your parents on a day-to-day basis. Um, you need to really... Show that independence um, and and show that show that strength, if you will um, and and again, when I was in Boston, this was way before the era of you know having wi fi access and calling home every day and checking in three times a day with your parents so it was a different world, so it was like once a week call and that's what you got, and that's what you did, and that was usually from the from the either hall phone or from if you were lucky enough to have a phone in your room so um that that probably was the most um, the most important sort of first chapter in my growing up. And then I would say the next big chapter growing up would probably be when I was outside Paris. Uh, and I went to business school, um, at Fontainebleau, uh, for, to INSEAD mm-hmm. and, and that was even, you know, talk about independence to the next level. You know, you, you really needed to stretch your wings and it's scary and it's not easy. And there are times you're thinking, have I made a horrible mistake? Um, I'm in this school with all these McKinsey consultants, and I don't even know how to use Excel. And how did I get myself into this mess? And then you realize your only goal is to get yourself out of the mess and just get through it. And, um, and I remember, you know, calling home very, in, very occasionally, because, again, it was super expensive and not easy to do back then. And I just remember telling my parents, this is like a different league. I mean, these people are smart. These people are able. Um, they've had so many more life experiences than I have. They've had so much more professional experience than I have. And my mother just said, honey, just get through it. Just like you don't need to be the top of the class, just get through it. Just think you're going to learn more from this than they will because you had more to learn from this than they did.
0: Sounds like a good Baltimore mom.
1: Yes. Both my mom and my dad, I have to say, I, I got pretty lucky on that front. There's no question about that.
0: Good pragmatic advice, Elizabeth. Your career after NCIAD has taken you in this incredible journey. You have you've had this 360 view of retail as as few people in commerce that few have had. Saks Fifth Avenue, J Crew, the Estee Lauder Companies, B H Cosmetics, and now this loved brand Anthropology. Which of those have had the most outsized impact on you, and which leaders have had? The most outsized impact on you to this day.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's hard to pick just one because I think that the, what what I what I've realized is that part of what makes my being where I am now is because of actually all of those different experiences, and um, you know if I if I think back to the ones of the most recent the recent period, um, you know Sixth Avenue. That was my first foray uh, into sort of a larger organization in a, in a leadership role, um, and really was a role that hadn't been defined when I, when I, when I joined. Um, I had to sort of figure out what is it that my skill set can bring to the table. And, and it was in the customer analytics, it was in the understanding of the database, it was um, not necessarily the workings and the SQL part of the, part of the database workings, but it was about how you can take the information. Of what the database holds, and how do you turn that into business uh, business s- strategies? And then, if I step after that, going to J. Crew, um, you know, there's there's no more inspiring person than like Mickey Drexler. I mean, he's an amazing, amazing, passionate, uh, passionate person. And I would say that what you learn from J. Crew, and this is going back a while, um, was that his passion for the business. We were in a very big, high growth mode at the time his passion for the business and his passion for detail. I mean, that is, if there's one person I would say that exemplifies retail as detail, it is him. He wants to know a customer comment. He wants to read all the comments. He wants to talk to the customers. He wants to know what makes that experience um, good, but he's more interested in what can make that experience much better. Um, So that I think was, um, that I think is a very important part of a leader Because you never want to have your separation from the customer get ever too big. You always want to make sure and to keep yourself in mind, why is it that I'm here every day? And why is it that I'm working so hard and I'm inspiring my team to work so hard? It's because we have a real customer who's spending real hard-earned money. In some cases, you know, saving up weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months so they can afford something from J.Crew. And we need to make sure that they get the service they deserve and and the product they deserve. So I would say his passion for retail, his passion for detail. Um, then I go straight from that end of the spectrum to Fabrizio Freda end of the spectrum, which could not be, in many ways, two different kind of leaders. And
0: Fabrizio is um, the CEO of Estee Lauder, yep, if our listeners yep, don't CEO know that. CEO of
1: Estee Lauder Companies.
0: And by the way, a, a friend of mine from P&G, I go way back with him. He is an amazing human being.
1: Amazing, amazing professional, amazing gentleman, amazing person, um, and I would say that the things I learned from Fabrizio, um, and from and from the leadership team, but exec, especially from him is is leadership in a very gracious way. Like he is the consummate professional, the consummate communicator, and he has an ability to connect and make people truly want to bring the very best to their work every day. And I think that is a very very important quality in a leader because ultimately you need to. You need to feel that you're in a place that truly wants you to succeed. And I felt, um, I felt that by, by him and very, and very many people there. Um, and it's, it's the learnings um, that I got of moving from a fast fashion retail space um, after coming off of a luxury retail space. And now I'm just jumping into luxury beauty, um, which was certainly a bit of a change, um, but one that I, I actually really enjoyed. Um, it was in my in, in my opinion, it was a much more sort of strategic, um, thoughtful approach. And it, in that particular example of Estee Lauder companies, you sort of had the CBG, CPG model, like the you know like the Procter and Gamble model. But then you combine that with your your lux space, which I had experience from from my SACS days, and there you find the sort of intersection at a place like Estee Lauder companies.
0: What do you think it is about Fabrizio? I mean, what, how does he do it? I mean, what, what, what have you taken away and maybe integrated into your leadership style? I mean, I know, what you're, I know him, so I understand what you're saying about him. But for our listeners, what do you think it is that he does that makes him such a good communicator, a uh, good strategist, a good organizational leader? I think it
1: starts with he's a good listener. I think he starts as a good listener. And he's also extremely um patient i mean he was a teacher also and i think that he when he came on board it was before i joined so he was already there when i joined um he really felt it was his it was his purpose to make sure that he was leading the team to a better a better place and leading the team together to a better place so i think it was a combination of strong communicator um thoughtful thoughtful thinker, um, an inspiring leader, and he always wanted to connect with people. Like, he truly wanted to show his appreciation for them and show how valuable they were to the organization. And as a result, I mean, he, ter- he really started turning that business around with all the same players. Like, it was not like a massive redo of the executive team. It was a lot of the same people who had been part of the company for many, many years um, but they were actually much more focused on working together and and alignment of a strategy. And he was also extremely clear that our success is not about making a sales plan or or um, or you know um, you know having a great launch. It was it was those things for certain. It was doing so together as a team. And he was very very focused. As makes sense coming from his P and space. Very focused on market share, and, um, and and looking at market share is an opportunity to always win and always deliver, even in down markets. And you know, it's something that I think about every day. Having gone through an entire year of COVID, um, where let's face it, people weren't necessarily um, dressing up to go to a graduation party recently. Um, hopefully, they will too soon again. But you know, in this last year, I've thought about that a lot. You know, in a down market, how do you think about growing market share? Because if you can come out of it in a much stronger space um, and in a much stronger place, then you can really maximize the next chapter.
0: I started reading Leonard Lauder's new book, or reasonably new book, The Company I Keep. It's really good. Yeah, It's really good. I mean, I knew it would be good. It's even better than I thought well, it
1: would he, be. Well, he is an amazing leader too. I mean, he truly yeah. knows how to connect with people and make them feel special. And and just exactly like what I was just mentioning about Mickey, of being in the stores and really making that an important part of, of his weekly ritual, like that was where he came alive. It's the same thing with Leonard Lauder. I mean, you see him walk the floors and talk to the beauty associates and talk to those beauty advisors, and he comes alive. Like that's, that's what he knows is, is the magic of that brand.
0: We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You're in anthropology now and you're putting all these lessons to work for you. You have a very large scope as CMO. You have direct-to-consumer, social, all the brand stuff, events, partnerships, data analytics, PR. So that's, that's a big remit. And you're a bit over a year in the job, so which of those capabilities are you, Elizabeth, most focused on right now?
1: Well, I think the the business needs of the last year required us to get super focused on our direct to consumer business, um, us and the rest of the world. Uh, so that was absolutely positively um, one of our one of our priorities, um, and one that we continue having as a priority. I would also say that. Um, that our 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 social footprint, like what what is what is our conversation with the customer every day look like, um, you know with or without a transaction um, it's it's so much more important to be tapped into your consumer, uh, both your current and your potential, um, than it is necessary to, to every day uh, you know wring the till from that consumer. so I would say that um, thinking about our, our social our social aspects of our brand, our, our social media aspects of our brand, the partners that we work with. Um, you know, we've launched, we've launched working with ambassadors that we, we launched over the course of the year. Um, we've now just launched ambassadors for our Anthro Living division, which is our home division. So it's, it's those areas because that then allows us to tell the stories of the brands. And it also allows our consumers to be part of those stories of the brands, um, which I think they also love doing.
0: Yeah. Elizabeth, which of – I know you're f- focused on direct-to-consumer now. It's been that kind of year. Of all the things that are under your remit, which beyond DTC is, do you think, most mission-critical for anthropology's future?
1: Oh, um, I think the – I think this is not just for anthropology. I think it's for any company. Um, is the, I call it the two T's. is the talent and the trust. So I think it's, one, having the right talent at the right place at the right time. Um, and the second is uh, having talent that you can trust and that um, that you have the confidence in for them to do their very best work every day and for them to bring to the table their expertise, which is exactly why you hired them. And I think if, if I think back to where I've had my cha- most challenging professional, um, you know, challenging moments, challenging times. It's if I didn't either have the right talent and I trusted the wrong talent, because that gets you into business problems, or if you actually do have the right talent, but you didn't trust them enough, and that gets you into organizational challenges and potentially um, attrition challenges. So I think the two T's between talent and trust, I think are two really, really important elements. And it's funny how interconnected they are because if you do have the right talent and you can, you can trust them with their experience and their expertise to bring you to the table, then that is the magic. That's when the magic can happen. Um, and then they trust you too. You know, the trust works both ways. They trust you to keep guiding them to a better future.
0: Can you click down a bit more on that? I want to pause there, Elizabeth. Talent and trust, very powerful uh, concepts, could you help our listeners a bit with how you do that? you know you're 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 now in your second year in anthropology what how do you spend your time? How do you make sure your organization understands that? How do you know you're achieving it? Uh, so if you could just you know unpack that a little bit for us, pull the screen back and let us know the how behind building trust and talent
1: well, I think it's it's definitely been um, for me, and I think for everybody, uh, it, it, it's a path. I mean, it, it doesn't happen overnight. And if I think about when I was an early, an early manager, you know, managing just a few people, um, you know, I think the, the natural tendency is you tell people what to do. Like, tell them what to do. I want you to do X. X, And then you get to the point where you, you sort of evolve to stage two and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to show you what to do and not just tell you. And then they get more engaged when you show them. And then you get to like the sort of the third stage, and you're like, okay, now I'm going to guide you to what I think needs to be done. And that's really important because then they are able to grasp it even further. And that makes a lot of sense. And then ultimately, you do get to that level of trust um, where you don't need to necessarily even guide them because they're now guiding you to what they think needs to be done. And then you're there now to help them facilitate how do they actually get it executed in the organization. And that comes with. Uh, your own aptitude and your own sort of you know i q slash e q combo of how do I now take this idea and and rally around the the my my partners whether it be in my brand or beyond my brand um you know with the with the broader urban group to actually grow um grow this idea and get support for this idea so um I think that is That is, for me, I think the most important part, which is um, listening, like trying to really understand uh, where they believe the opportunity is and then do everything I can to support them on delivering against that opportunity.
0: When you came into the job, you know, I'm sure you had a remit. There's a reason you were brought in, a reason you were hired. Could you tell us a bit about how that has changed over the last year and a half and kind of what your job is now. You came in, I'm sure, with certain expectations. People are endlessly curious about what CMOs do, and it is a bit different by company and certainly by industry. So could you tell us a bit about you know, how, what you work on? If you had to put your time into buckets, what would they be?
1: So my role was not one um... – I was not replacing anybody. There was, there was not my role established in the organization when I came in. Um, so, and, it, and it's very interesting because actually most of my roles of my, um, of my last number of years of working have been exactly that same situation. They've almost been created based on my skill set. And I think that's a pretty unique situation to be in. But on the flip side, those are those are often bigger, biggest shoes of all to fill because you're creating the shoe while you're trying to fill the shoe. Um, So in my case, it it wasn't a brand that was broken. And I think that's actually something that is really, really important. Um, When you have so much love for a brand that anthropology has and the the customers who love anthropology, you already have magic that you have the opportunity to work with. So, and, and never underestimate the power of that magic. Um, I always laugh because I've joined some amazing companies in my in my years and and when I was finally around to updating my LinkedIn profile for uh anthropology, I updated my profile and I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with the number of people who congratulated me, reached out, said, This is fantastic, this is the best news ever. I love anthropology, it's my favorite brand. Oh my gosh, the best job in the world. And I'm like, I know, I have the best job in the world. Isn't that amazing? But these weren't people I knew; these were random people who just loved anthropology. So I'm thinking to myself, "Oh my gosh, like there is such an amazing love of this brand. How do we actually unleash it to the nth degree? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't need to have a whole bunch of, you know, influencers to talk about my brand. I, I need to have all my customers talk about how fabulous my brand is. Um, so." So that makes it really special. So back to your question more directly. Um, how do I spend my time and how did I come in and, and what was my purpose? My purpose was in a, in a more strategically thoughtful approach, how do we how do we think about our our merchandise strategies? How do I think about our categories of business, and how do we grow those by figuring out which customers to go after? And and how we're going to reach them, and and in my very first project coming on board was one focus wholly and solely on home, and that was my very first project. And and the remit was, we have a home business, we want to grow it, help us grow it. So that was almost verbatim the extent of the of the remit. And I partnered very closely with the merchants. I partnered very closely with the um, the head of the direct business at the time, and. We said, what is it that the customer, who who is it we're going after? Where's our opportunity within home? And we quickly realized that the opportunity was, and this is again, pre-COVID, and that's an important element for the story. The opportunity was, how do we get people to know about our furniture business? How do we get people to know about our broader assortment than just Caffio Lay Cups? I mean, we're more than just Caffio Lay Cups. So how do people know about that? And then we said, okay, let's step back. Who is it we want to know about that? Well, um, it's not terribly scientific, but it's absolutely true that the person who's most interested in buying furniture has most likely moved in the last year. Seems obvious. All the research will tell you that. Okay, so now we said, okay, how are we going to reach them? Should we do a catalog? Should we do this? Should we do that? And then COVID hits. I mean, literally, uh, you know, literally within weeks of us sort of thinking through, we're gonna go after the home customer and we're gonna make sure that we have a furniture business that people know about and not just is a fabulous business, it's a fabulous business that people know about. That was a priority for us. And we we launched an Anthro Living uh, Instagram account dedicated wholly and solely to to our, our furniture and our home decor side. Um, we, we started focusing on Pinterest we started thinking about where do people who are first thinking about furniture and buying furniture for a home, where do they start the process? And they don't start the process with a catalog. They actually start the process on Pinterest, online. They start searching, comfortable sofa, 84-inch sofa. You know, they start searching that way. And that pointed us in the direction of making sure that we had um, A, the right strategy, B, the right assets, um, C, the right partners to work with, um, which included, in this case, Pinterest. And then we just grew it from there. And, and you know, it, it's funny how you plant those seeds, not even knowing where they're going to grow. And then what was absolutely positively a challenging time for our apparel business over the past year, um, just based on the kind of uh, business that we sell and the, the products that we sell, it was a wonderful time for our home business. And it was a wonderful time to have people discover just the range of our assortment and the quality of our product and the uniqueness of our product, because we are very different from our competitors. You know, not everywhere you can find a peacock blue sofa or a, you know, blush pink uh, ottoman, but you can find them at Anthropology.
0: So I, I, I love consumer research. So just what's selling really, really well in the home area now in terms of item or category?
1: Oh, well, our beloved product, of course, is our... Um, you know paris inspired primrose mirror so the gleaming primrose mirror is our, is one of our uh, shining spotlights no pun intended it's 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 truly a truly a a great piece but it's it's interesting how it's interesting how the customers respond to it because whether you are 22 and you've just graduated college and you're getting your first apartment you're renting you it's a splurge for them because they're like, oh my gosh, but it's worth the splurge. No one ever questions it. It's funny to read the ratings and reviews and hear the customers saying, oh my gosh, I've been you know, dying over this for the last three years. I wish I could afford it. I finally decided to do it. And it's worth every penny. If I have read that once, I've read that 10 times. It's worth every penny. And that's, as a marketer, you feel really proud that someone who actually bought into this and is... And, Spending their hard earned money has actually felt even more value coming out of it than what they put into it.
0: That's a big statement. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Hey, you know, you referred to the crazy year we've all had, and you know, you're in retail. It was a tough year for retail. You fared as well as most. Uh, sales were down, but you hung in there. What have you done, Elizabeth, to keep your team over this time creative, energized, optimistic, fresh,
1: First and foremost, I think in times like this, you have to have as much communication as possible. I think that's really, really important. Um, People need to know that they matter. People need to know that they're heard. People need to know that they have a place uh, and they have a home and that they are safe in that home. And I think that's really, really important. You know, a lot of people who work for anthropology and urban outfitters and free people, you know, a lot of our um, a lot of our teams are young and they live alone and they don't have a partner or, um, or or someone to sort of lean on and talk to outside of the workday. Um, so, for many of our associates across the whole Urban Inc, uh, the their work represented more than just their work; it also represented um, their social life and their and their friendships. So, keeping those alive is really important. And the other thing is, um, and this is something that I just That I just put into place probably summer, starting summer of last year. And it was, I call a marketing meetup. And it's with no agenda. There is no deliverable. There is no expectation. There is no pre read. And there is no post meetup survey that needs to be filled out and submitted. It is a time for people to just visit. And speak to one another to in a in a very pale way, in a very, very pale comparison to real life, try to emulate or try to be a substitute for, hey, why don't we grab a coffee together? Or why don't we walk over to the canteen together? Or why don't we um, hey, you're walking down to that meeting, let's walk together, and how was your weekend? Those parts of our life have all but gone away. And you know, my brother, who's a law professor, and you know, his life turned upside down too when this all happened. Um, he he made a he made a point to say to me, which I think is a really really good analogy. In today's world, we are eight hours, if not more, a day, brick on brick on brick on brick. It's meeting on meeting on meeting on meeting, and it's all dense and intense and hard hard stuff we're doing every day. And there's no mortar. There's no mortar between all those bricks. And it's the mortar that actually keeps those bricks stabilized. And so in my funny, you know, weird way, I'm trying to infuse a little mortar into our week, into our day, by at least making sure that people are coming to work, not only for what they can contribute, but also for them being themselves and, and being valued as contributors themselves.
0: That's beautifully said. And I couldn't agree more. Communication, care, kindness, flexibility. This is what's needed more than ever right now. Elizabeth, before we run into the last part of this segment, the last part of this podcast, I want to ask you about the magic of this brand. You used that word you know, a few moments ago. The brand is coming up in 30 years old. It has a very interesting origin story and it has stayed as much as I can tell, pretty true to the original catalyst of the brand. That's not easy to do Mm-mm. over five years, much less 30. So, could you speak a bit about the importance of that origin story, the importance of that purpose? If you, we talk a lot about purpose on this podcast and what we can learn about keeping that fresh and evolving while true to its origin over the 30 years. And speak a little bit more about the magic here that you felt when you came in and you continue to feel.
1: Yeah. I think what makes um, anthropology special and unique is that it doesn't subscribe to the quote unquote, more traditional um, successful paths of operations. And it is a brand that, has the the benefits of being a big brand in terms of, you know, we have we have all the positives of a big brand. We have um, we have we have stores that we that we want to make look special and feel special. We have a very robust um, web website. We have a very robust um, you know tech team that is supportive of our of our future uh, of our future opportunities on on the DTC side. Um, we have all sort of the infrastructure, if you will, that a bigger company would benefit from, but we also have the the speed and the quirkiness of a small startup, and I think that part is what makes the magic of the brand and has retained the magic of the brand for so many years. I also think that um, you know when we when the when the merchants are going to Dubai's, they're not thinking always like. There should be 5,000 units. There should be seven. Like how many could we sell? It's They're thinking more along like, how special is this? Like how special and how much is this going to delight the customer? And is this one of those items that cannot be found anywhere else? Not just the product and the brand can't be found anywhere else, but is this a product? Is this something that could only be anthropology? Because that is what makes it so special. Um, And I would also say that, you know, for, and this is from a marketer saying this. So this is saying something is, um, and something that I actually learned a lot from Fabrizio Freida as well, which is one of the risks you can have as a company in, in using its data is you all of a sudden let data lead your decision-making. And I think that's very, very, very dangerous because first and foremost, data is by definition historical. And if you're in a business that is all about inspiring and and, and inspiring your future and inspiring your customers and showing them the aspiration of what could be, then by definition, that may not ever be in any data set. So if you're constantly going back to the data to try to tell you what the future should look like, you're in a bit of a, you're in a, bit of a conundrum. Like that may not be the best way to go about it. What Fabrizio always used to say, and, and, I, and I firmly believe this as well, is that you can be a data Um, You could be data-led. Sorry, that's not what he said. You could be data-inspired, but creativity-led. And I think there's actually nothing more similar way to describe Estee Lauder companies and anthropology than that one statement. We can be data-inspired, but creativity-led. And that, I believe, is what makes anthropology so special. And and you know, that aside, the other thing that makes it so special is just the people, like the passion, the creativity. You know, we did something last holiday season, which was showcasing about 30 of our own people on our Instagram feed. And we called it, you know, we called it afternoons. Um, we had a afternoons at Anthro, and then we had a holidays at Anthro series. And these were tiny little local You know, these were low production. These were not big production things. These are someone's iPhone at home uh, in front of on a tripod. And we showcased our own people doing what they do best. And, um, you know, in the case, it could be someone who's a visual design in charge of our visual design. What does he do best? He can show us how to get his his home ready for the holidays. And then we showcase somebody else who's been with the company for so long, and she's in charge of product and she would show us her favorite ornaments over the years it was mesmerizing like you 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 couldn't believe just how interesting and how fun and you felt like someone's actually opened her door to her home which she literally did and showed you all of her favorite ornaments over the years and what the story was behind the ornament you know what was the story behind that fabulous seal or that crazy or that crazy turtle or that you know funny little Sarah mouse. I mean, there's stories behind all those things. And I think that's what makes anthropology so special because everyone, um, that I've spoken to, at least in my, in my life so far, if I say I work for anthropology, there's always a, oh my gosh, that's where I found my favorite fill in the blank, fill in the blank. And to have that kind of heart share with, with a consumer is, is pretty special.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a, Leveraging your employees in a creative culture like yours is such a good idea. And I think other companies could learn from that. You know, the greatest creative companies in the world are filled with amazing people and amazing people want to learn people. about them. Yep. So I just think it's a brilliant move of you to showcase your people last holiday season. And I can't wait to see what you do this holiday season.
1: It was, it was really fun. And I think what was, we, we all thought it was a good idea. Executions always a little more challenging than than the idea, which we figured that out too. Um, but the thing that was at least surprising to me was just how much the customers loved it. I mean, they loved, loved, loved seeing our real people. And if you go over and over and over, they would say, you, are, you have the most creative team there is. You have the most creative team. This is the most creative thing I've ever seen. You know, we had Windows... Um, in all of our stores, we had a theme that had all these animals and those windows, you may not know this, but those windows were actually created by people in the store. It's not like they're created, all the all the installations are created at a central location, shipped out. We don't do that. We give guidance, we give inspiration to the stores, and they have their own team of creative artists that actually come up with the ideas that are aligned with our overarching strategic vision, but it's not as though there is like a cookie cutter approach and every store looks just the same and every installation's all the same. So that, that keeps it truly special and truly unique.
0: I want to move to our last section of the podcast and what we are now calling the creator brief, where we hope to reveal interesting and mind-opening insights from you, Elizabeth. If you were not a CMO, what would you be?
1: Oh, if I was not a CMO, um, I would. I love teaching. I, I would love to teach. I love to cook. I always think um, in my in my future world, uh, my my retirement plan is I want to go and study cooking, and go back to France and and study cooking because I could I could combine my love of French, my love of eating, and my my passion for cooking all together. So, um, something that connects with other people too, though, I have to say, like, that's why I like teaching. I've never taught. So this is sort of not exactly well, you true. teach every day when think, you're a But CMO. I think I teach in my own way. I, I, yeah. I, if you think about teaching as just, um, it's basically your role as bringing out the best of other people and getting them to achieve the very best that they can, then that is a role of a teacher.
0: Right on. Right on. I was told in my early days at Procter and Gamble many years ago that every day you're a teacher, and every interaction is a teaching moment when you're in business and marketing. And that's what you just said. It's so true. It's so and, true. You know,
1: what, and and along the same lines, and this is something that I that I try to um, repeat a lot with my own team is, it's the flip side of that, which is also feedback is a gift, and I can't. Underscore that enough, because I think there's a tendency to sort of shy away from receiving feedback, especially if it's not positive, and you feel your first instinct is to be defensive. Like, well, that's not true. Didn't they see that? And didn't they understand that? And I can't believe they said that. But I think to myself, if someone's actually going to go to the effort, which is not easy as a manager to give bad feedback or give you know constructive feedback, if someone's going to go to the effort of of sharing that, then you as an associate, need to be professional enough to accept it openly and accept it graciously and know that they're saying this because they see something in you that you may not even yet see, and they want to help you get to that point that you may not even think is possible. So accept it openly, graciously, and be thankful for it.
0: It's a great lesson. Along those lines, the most memorable day in your career?
1: Oh, Um I would say the day I got my offer to join anthropology, it was, it, was the, it was the day where I thought, oh my gosh, like an amazing brand that had been part of my own life, my own personal life. Um, and now they're entrusting me to actually take us to a new stage of what our, our growth could be like and what our brand could, could feel like to more people. Um, not just be like, but feel like to more people. That's that's an amazing, amazing opportunity. And I still pinch myself every single day that I that I have this opportunity and that I and that I have this role. Um, and now I have got a great team. Um, they do amazing work every day. They come they come to the quote unquote virtual Zoom office every morning, and um, and they they make it happen.
0: Most inspiring person in your life.
1: One person I've, I've, I've read quite a few books about, um, and it's, I'm probably interested in her in the same way as I'm, in, I'm inspired by my mom, is Julia Child. Because here's this woman who's like, okay, I'm going off to France. What am I going to do? I'm going to learn cooking. And she didn't want to just be a cook. She wanted to be the best. And she wanted to teach people about a subject that was absolutely positively irrelevant for most people. But she had a passion for it. She wanted that passion to come alive in others. She did that. And she started a whole new generation of an interest in a category and in a subject that, that was brand new at the time. So she was a pioneer.
0: Greatest goof up in your career and how you recovered?
1: Oh, gosh, there's been lots of goof ups. Um, I would say greatest goof up is not staying close enough to sort of the the under the radar trends of what's going on. It's really easy to sort of stay above and and stay on like okay, what's been what's been what's been communicated, what's been explained, what's what's the official statement? But I think um but I think you also have to make sure you're staying below the radar a little bit and knowing what the undercurrent is. Because that will only help point you in a direction of what the future is, somebody shared t- share with me, and I think it's a really good way of um of explaining it is she's like you never you know you're you're very professional elizabeth and and you 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 want to make sure you're doing the appropriate things at all times and i and I preach that about you, however, you need to know what's going on even if you don't go down to that level, so to speak so I think um just sort of having an understanding mm-hmm. about where the organization is going and and what the themes are there. That's a great insight.
0: Who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast?
1: I knew you were going to ask me that because you ask a lot of people that. And I literally, I was going to tell you, and this was all ready to go. I was going to tell you, I would love to hear from Corey Marcus Soto. But of course, you just had her. So I can't say that anymore.
0: That's a good endorsement Um, for it.
1: But anyway, I would say one person who I know has also been mentioned in the past who I would love to hear from um, was another colleague of mine, Sharice uh, uh, Ford Hughes. Um, and she's now with Kellogg. And I think she'd be fantastic.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's a good idea. So last word to you. Any question for me before we sign off from this great discussion, Elizabeth?
1: If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing?
0: Well, I would, be, <laughs> I would probably be in media, which I'm now doing you're with in this media. podcast. Yeah, yeah and, you're in and media. so I've evolved into that. So I'm doing, I think, exactly what I want to do.
1: That's perfect. That's perfect.
0: Elizabeth, thank you for this. It's a real gift. I enjoyed it so much. Good luck with everything. You have a wonderful brand. It's important to my family. And uh, and thanks so much for sharing a bit of your life today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: That was my conversation with Elizabeth Price. Three takeaways from this one to apply in your business and life. The first one, a lesson that Elizabeth learned at Estee Lauder and is applying to anthropology, being data-inspired but creativity-led. Again, data inspired, creativity led. Look at the data, think about the data, but rely on your organization's creativity to look around the corner to help you develop strategies that will win in the future. My second takeaway is bricks and mortar. And I'm not talking about stores made of bricks and mortar. I'm talking about the lives we live now. Elizabeth talked about how our lives during COVID are stacked like bricks. We go from meeting to meeting. Her job with her team is to put some mortar between the bricks so people have time to relax, refresh, and renew. Third takeaway, when I asked Elizabeth what she focuses on, she said the two T's, talent and trust. She believes it's important for her people to bring their full potential to work and to let them be themselves. She said, I spend my time on attracting talent, getting them in the right jobs, and building trust with my people and with our partners and with our customers. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast.